come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. But you don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder. When a mob boss is shot, his son seeks revenge and takes control of the family business. Listen as we discuss why Dan Quayle shouldn't be in charge of hiding a gun, when it's okay to use a real horse head in a movie, and James's good buddy, Wikipedia. Leave the gun, take the cannoli, and find out if The Godfather stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and what is your name? I'm James Brief. It's almost 300 episodes and more than 20 years since you've known me, and I'm right in front of you. Yes, this is true. I do know your name. I just like to hear you say it. It's episode 297. We are getting close to 300. But I feel like we have to say something about Ukraine as we start off this episode. We're not a political podcast, and we don't always talk about what's happening in the real world. But the reason I feel like we have to bring it up is, remember a few episodes ago, or more than a few, I honestly don't remember when it was, but I kind of made some joke about like, James, we are the number 72 film review podcast in Luxembourg, or something like that. And I get these emails and it shows us these numbers and, you know, we record the episodes in New York, we're New Yorkers, but they go onto the internet and they're everywhere. And it's entirely possible that there are people in Ukraine listening to our show. Or not, maybe they're zero and maybe no one in Ukraine has ever listened to the test of time. But I feel like it's just worth saying that we just want to make sure that anyone in Ukraine who may be listening is okay, that they're safe, that they're doing all right. If you're like me and want to do something more than just send well wishes, there's plenty of charities out there. I donated a little to UNICEF that made me feel a little bit better. I don't know how much that really helps on the ground, but um, just to say that we're thinking of the people in Ukraine and all that they're going through and just hoping that everyone's okay. Yeah, well said. Uh, One thing I will add is uh, something I thought that was really interesting that people have been doing is they have been reserving Airbnbs in Ukraine. I saw that. And it's not going to be much. It's going to be, you know, probably 10 bucks a day they're renting it out for. And you can probably rent for a week and, you know, just basically send them them a couple bucks. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty cool. Yes, that is a cool thing. And if anyone in Ukraine or anyone in the world is listening to our podcast as a little escape from the tumultuous events of the world, I was watching something to get my mind off some of this stuff the other day. I was watching a reality show, and it was this one, Love is Blind. And you know, quickly, the premise is that uh, people meet each other without seeing them and, and try to get married. I guess the idea is just to love them for who they are on the inside, and that's the idea. And there is this one character on the show that 
all he's doing is asking them about their physical self and like, what size are you? And how much do you weigh? And and this stuff. And my question to you is, this guy doesn't seem to be a dummy. He's, he's, a, he's a veterinarian. He seems like he's an intelligent guy. You've done reality shows. And I wonder, do people forget that they're on camera and they say these things? Because you would think think or I would think if I'm on a microphone even if you're thinking something you just don't say certain things on camera and it just blows my mind that people will say these things and thus creating a villain persona on the internet well I think there's several different reasons why that could happen one is that the person does want to play a character play a role and they are more than happy to say the quote-unquote controversial thing. If you say the out there edgy thing, you're going to get airtime. You're going to be a meme. People are going to talk about you on Twitter. If you're just a regular, nice, bland person, you will be forgotten. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that maybe this person asked these questions, but they were 2% of everything they said, and then by editing, it's 100% of what you see. So then they become the villain. Or maybe they weren't thinking of saying anything like that, but the producer coaches them to or tells them to and say, oh, we won't even use it, but just say these things. And, uh, you know, that is what they use. There's a lot of different reasons why somebody might say something stupid. I think that there is definitely more of an awareness of what you look like on reality TV. It's not like when, you know, reality TV was brand new and people would just go into it and hope for the best. Like people know today, right? Like if you've seen reality TV and then you're going to be on reality TV, you know, you can kind of sort of manipulate the system. But also still, even though you know it and you're so smart, the producers and the editors can still make you look a certain way. But you still have to say the thing. And if you're going to be on a show where you're not supposed to care about physical attributes and a producer whispers in your ear, ask her about her boobs or about her face or whatever, you can say no, right? Like you can say, I'm not going to say that. And then maybe you get kicked off the show. Maybe you don't. But you have that right if you really feel strongly about something. You know, that that makes perfect sense how you can come across that way. But, you know, it's interesting what you said. They still have to say it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it just comes, it blows my mind that someone would go on television unless they're the scenario you're talking about. They're kind of maybe trying to break into Hollywood or be an actor or be a villain, Omarosa type uh, person. You can make a whole career out of being, uh, you know, kind of jumping from reality show to reality show or a public speaker, write a book or something. I think a lot of it is that. Maybe. But, you know, when you're on a show and it's your wedding day, there's no editing around the fact that you said to somebody, I'm not attracted to this person physically. This is going to air. Like, everyone's going to see this. Like, if you're going to be flirting with other people, like, fine, you're flirting with other people at the beginning of a dating show. That's fine. But everything you say after, if you go to the camera and go, I still have feelings for this woman— you realize that this person you're with is going to see it. It just blows my mind out that people forget that they're on the show, but I could also understand maybe they do. I honestly don't think people forget. I think that when you have a camera in front of you, 
It's an awkward thing. It's not normal. And you know it. There's a room full of people. There's a camera guy. There's lighting. There's sound. There's a producer. They're all watching you. They're all staring at you. So you know that what you're saying is being recorded. Right. It's not like a big brother thing where maybe you're not aware of all the hidden cameras and the light bulbs. Maybe you, you forget it for a second. So, so there's all these people. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Getting a little bit meta, you and I are having a normal conversation and we might discuss something like this normally, but we're still aware of the fact that there are microphones in front of us. We still know that we're talking for the podcast. You know, like maybe you wouldn't say something that you would say otherwise because you know that the little red light is on the device and it's being recorded. Yeah, you're just aware of it. You'd have to be a pretty dumb person to forget that. Although there are a lot of dumb people out there. So maybe, you know. I think reality television is in some ways trashy, but in some ways kind of fascinating. So it must have been an interesting kind of television to work in. I didn't find it to be particularly interesting. I found it to be soul-crushing and soul-sucking, actually. And I will not watch any of it, in large part because I think there's just so much great scripted stuff out there that, to me, is far more fascinating. Wow. That's someone who's, you know, worked in the hot dog factory and knows how it's worked and, you know, becomes a vegetarian. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I don't watch any of that stuff. Well, let's talk about the opposite of reality television, and let's talk about... A movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture, the first of a trilogy. Today we're going to talk about uh, 1972's The Godfather. Right. Listeners of the podcast know that I'm a sucker for anniversaries and sometimes we'll do a movie because it's the 35th anniversary or whatever and like, who cares? But this is the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. This is a thing that people besides you and I are talking about. I believe the movie's being re-released into theaters and there's articles and blogs and interviews and things. Like people are talking about this because this movie is a huge, huge deal. And yeah, we're jumping on that bandwagon. This is a movie that is considered a classic in the gangster genre. And I had seen all three Godfather movies once before this. I had seen them, but I am not like an avid watcher. It's not like a thing I watch all the time. What's your connection with the movies? Have you seen all of them and this one in particular many times? Exact same thing. Once when I was like 24 or something, I went away with some friends and we did. We watched it and then I never watched it again. And it's an interesting thing because it's like people have never seen Star Wars. They've heard Darth Vader. They've heard the lines from it. You know, you've heard, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. You know, you've definitely heard the the Marlon Brando impression. You know, you, you want to do yours, Al? I mean, um, I'll make him an offer. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's like having an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Like, yeah. I think at least certainly 40 years ago, 50 years ago, everyone had a Brando Godfather impression. For us, it was something that the grown-ups did yeah. and we'd mimic. But um, Godfather, for me, was always such an 
old movie. But, you know, it wasn't made that much before we were born. Right. No, we were born in 79. The movie came out in 72. Uh, so, yeah, it is a little bit weird thinking of that it's the 50th anniversary because that means that we are getting closer to 50, which I don't want to think about at all. And I, I hate that I even just said it. But the movie is the first in a trilogy about the Corleone mob family. And in this movie, we're introduced to the family's business led by patriarch Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando. Vito has one daughter and three sons, and all signs point to the family business going to Sonny, the eldest son. Then Vito is shot, and Michael, the youngest son, who is considered a civilian, exacts revenge. Sonny's temper gets the better of him, and he's then killed. Eventually, Michael is thrust into leading the family. So I don't need to ask you if this was a big hit when it was released, even though it was seven years before we were born. I know that this was a huge smash blockbuster when it came out. I believe it broke some records, right? For a while, this was the number one film based on different records, not, not adjusting for inflation. It was the mm -hmm. number one film for a while in America of all time. It had a $6 million budget, and by some accounts, it's made in the $250 million range. In a Star Wars kind of way, I think people had just never seen anything like this before. Yeah. To us, it's the archetype of everything we see today, but this is the first time they had seen it. Yes. So we start the film. It's post-World War II, and we start at the uh, wedding. It's uh, Connie's wedding, uh, Connie played by Talia Shire. For you and I, we know her most famously as uh, Adrian from the Rocky series, we should mention that Talia Shire is Francis Ford Coppola's sister. Yes, and when we talk about the Coppola family, it is a massively famous family. I mean, Nicolas Cage is a Coppola. Mm -hmm. Jason Schwartzman is a Coppola. Sophia Coppola. And the wedding scene sets the stage for everything to come. There's a lot of people who come in to ask the Don for favors, who we will see later on in the movie. Also, it just kind of like establishes who the Don is and the relationships that he has with the community where he will grant you a favor if you come to him and show respect and if you are friendly to him and if you have been friends with him. Enzo the baker, like he didn't really have anything to do with Vito because uh, he's a criminal. And then he comes and asks him for a favor and Vito says, hey, you weren't really a very good friend to me. Why should I help you out? Well, I will because you are a nice person, but you're going to owe me a favor someday. And oh, yeah. Where he goes, someday, and that day may never come, but someday I may call upon you for a favor. I mean, it's just so cool the way he says it. Like, we talk about it, like, almost in a comical way. This is mob talk, but this is the archetype of where it comes from. You know, this is all Brando that came up with this stuff, and when you think of some Someone like Dracula, when you think of like, I am Dracula. All of this is Lugabelosi, the guy that came up with this in the 1930s uh, Dracula films. Like, it's amazing the influence that this one guy and, or, you know, the director and all this other stuff and everyone around him. And Mario Puzo. And who, Mario Puzo. Who, who wrote the novel that this movie is based on and is credited as a screenwriter as well. Apparently, he came up with the idea of a godfather as a leader of the mafia family that was like from his imagination and now that's a thing that's amazing yeah and of course we might as well mention what's the other thing you and i will always know about mario puzo oh that he wrote the screenplay for superman the motion picture that's correct which also starred marlon brando correct yeah and 
you see uh, Sonny in this wedding scene. Uh, he is played by James Caan. He's brash. He's there, you know, uh, having a great time at the party. He's there with his wife, but he's uh, having an affair with one of the bridesmaids. Then there's Michael, who is played by a very young baby-faced Al Pacino. He's there with his girlfriend, Kay, played by a very young Diane Keaton. And he's explaining to her that this is his family. They are criminals, but he is not like that. He has just returned from World War II. He was in the military. He is a respectable person. This is his family, and he loves them, but this is not his life. And he makes that very clear to Kay. He explains the story of Johnny Fontaine to Kay, who is a singer who is basically considered family. And the reason that he got his contract is because Michael's father, Vito, basically threatened a record producer. But then Johnny goes to Vito and asks for another favor because he wants to be in some movie and the producer isn't helping him. So this is the favor that he is asking of Vito on the day of his daughter's wedding. The movie producer, the guys talk to him like, come on, let our guy in. He goes, absolutely not. And he has actually a pretty good reason for it. He implies that this uh, Johnny Fontaine maybe either beat up or assaulted, did something bad to one of the women. Oh, I didn't get that. That's very interesting that you got that read. And you know what? You might be right and I might be totally wrong. Johnny, quote unquote, ruined this young starlet I didn't take it as that he beat her or raped her or did anything like that. I thought it was just that maybe like they were dating and then by sheer virtue of the fact that they had a sexual relationship, then this starlet was no longer considered pure and virginal and innocent and therefore not marketable in Hollywood. That was the way I took it. I could completely be wrong and you might be right. That's interesting you took that way. It could go either way. But the interesting thing with the producer is that the way that this favor is being done is not with Vito or one of his kids. It's done through Vito's consigliere, Tom Hagen, played by Robert Duvall, who's amazing. And when Tom first goes to the producer, the producer is extraordinarily rude and is like, you can't tell me who to cast in my movie. Get the hell out of here. Then he realizes who Tom is. Tom works with Vito Corleone. And then the producer is very nice to Tom. It's a complete 180. And he gives him a tour of his home. And he shows him his prize horse. And he invites him to a very nice dinner. And that's where he explains why he can't give Johnny this role because of the thing with the woman. And then he like instantly turns super angry again. And is like, and how dare you come here and tell me who to put in my movie and get out of here. And I thought it was just kind of funny that he did like a 180 and then like another 180 right after. Like if he realizes that this guy is connected to the mob, which is why he's being so nice, don't then turn around and insult him again seconds later because there will be a consequence to that. And the consequence is the thing that everyone knows that has been parodied in The Simpsons and in a million other places. He wakes up in the morning and the head of his beloved prize horse is there next to him. Apparently, that was a real horse head. I read that today. It was from like a dog food factory and the horse was already dead. So it wasn't like they killed a horse for it. But still, animal activists were not happy with that, that it was an actual real dead horse's head. I mean, 
I would rather the head be used for some kind of meat for other animals than for a prop in a in a play when that could probably be used uh, prosthetically. But if it's not generally used and it's thrown out, then I wouldn't have a problem with it generally, I guess. But I do not know. I'm going to have to plead ignorance. So that is my conditional. I'm either angered or okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a horse that died 50 years ago. I think it's okay to just kind of shrug and say, eh, all right. I do also feel like I should mention, just because you are here in my home on Long Island, a lot of this movie was filmed on Long Island. A lot of it takes place on Long Island, even though some of the scenes that are supposed to take place on Long Island were shot on Staten Island. This scene, which was supposed to take place in LA, was filmed on Long Island. So, you know, just a little shout out for my home suburbs of Long Island. All right, Long Island. And then there's Fredo, uh, played by the late uh, John Cazal. And he's not as good as his little brother. Uh, he's not as good as his big brother. He's kind of passed over. And also, he does seem to be a little bit slower than the other guys. And he's a little bit simple. But, you know, at least, you know, right now, he's just, he's kind of harmless. Yeah. And for me, the archetype of a gangster film when I was growing up was Goodfellas. Yeah. Goodfellas kind of mirrors this film in one way in that the older guys are all about we don't get into the drug business. We're gamblers, prostitution, that, that stuff. Right. But we don't do drugs. That's a whole different thing. And Vito Corleone is saying the same thing. He does not want to get into narcotics. And he's very logical about it. He's, he's just saying narcotics means there's more people. You got to pay off cops and judges and politicians. Well, it's also that the judges and the politicians that he already has in his pocket, they'll turn a blind eye to gambling and whatever, but they won't turn a blind eye to selling drugs to kids. So that's where they will draw the line. So that's where Vito draws the line. And it comes up because this guy, Salazzo, wants to get into drugs and he wants Vito to help give him cover, like through his connections, his political connections. And Vito says no, and he sends one of his muscle guys Luca Brasi in to be a mole with the Tatalia family. And the Tatalia family is backing Salazzo, the guy who wants the drugs. It's a little confusing, and I will admit that I got all of this straight by reading it online after I watched the movie, because I was a little confused about how these guys were all connected. But he sends Luca Brasi to be a mole with the Tatalia family to find out what they're up to, and they immediately suspect him and kill him. And he's like a big dude, you know? Like, he's like a big hulking guy, mm -hmm. and they, they kill him. They strangle him. Although, when I was reading about it online, they say that he was garroted to death. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I guess that's basically just like strangling with a piano wire or something strangling is you're just kind of you know closing off the windpipe piano wire i mean you're kind of slicing through this guy i mean it, it is not a good death and then you can't play the piano anymore also and interesting he was wearing a bulletproof vest right right and the way that they then later send the message to the corleone family is they take his bulletproof vest and they put a dead fish in it which is a way of saying that he sleeps with the fishes. I didn't get it at first that it was his vest that indicated that they had killed him because when they just opened the package, to me, it just looked like a dead fish. Well, then how do they know that it was that guy who sleeps with the fishes? But it's because it was the vest. Yeah. 
And Vito is walking around and he, he's trying to get some oranges and he is gunned down. Yeah, he gets shot like five times in the back. He does somehow live and Vito's normal bodyguard wasn't there. He called in sick and Fredo is there working as a bodyguard and Fredo sucks. He doesn't know what to do. He like drops the gun while he's supposed to be like chasing after the assassin and it's not Fredo's fault. That's not his thing. But then everyone suspects the uh, the bodyguard who quote unquote called in sick. Uh, that bodyguard is dispatched. They kill him. And then there's a famous line where they say, leave the gun, take the cannoli because they had picked up some cannolis and, uh, you know, leave the gun because that's murder weapon evidence. But don't waste a perfectly good cannoli. Uh, I think I read that line was ad-libbed. But the way that Michael finds out that his father was shot is because he and Kay are walking down a New York City street and he sees it on a newspaper in a newsstand. And from like a test of time perspective, there are still newsstands in Manhattan, just far fewer of them than there used to be, right? Yeah, and more than that, there used to be like the late edition and the evening edition. Like newspapers were printed around the clock. Like there could yeah. be a brand new front page headline. And in the so, evening. Right, exactly. So this is very accurate that he could totally find out about the shooting of his father if it's uh, going to make the front page. So, you know, test of time, it's not what you'd see today. Right, right. But then Michael goes to visit his father in the hospital and there's no police. That's weird. And he realizes that something is happening some hitmen are going to come to finish the job. He's able to move his father into another room. And then someone comes to visit. I think it's Enzo the Baker, right, from the first scene. And he says, hey, you just stand outside with me and look tough and pretend like you're holding a gun. And that way, when the, the other mobsters come by to presumably kill Vito, they're scared off. And then a police captain is there and he gets very mad with Michael and Michael starts shouting at him. The police captain punches Michael in the face and Michael figures out that this police captain is on Tatalia's payroll. So he is corrupt and that's why he got rid of all of the police details so that Vito could be killed. Yes. Yeah, so Michael winds up uh, coming up with this plan. There's going to be a meeting at a restaurant with Salazzo and uh, Sergeant McCluskey. And they're going to come in. And since he knows he's going to be patted down when he comes in, he's going to go to the bathroom and waiting in the bathroom behind the toilet is going to be a gun. This is something else I definitely saw in some kind of parody. Oh, yes, yes, this was definitely, um, I'll tell you where I saw this. This was Saturday Night Live, and it was, um, what's his name, uh, Dana Carvey as George Bush. And I remember he was meeting Saddam Hussein in a <laughs> restaurant, and he goes to the bathroom, and the joke was, where's the gun? Oh, damn, I shouldn't have asked Quail to hide the gun. <laughs> and that would be former Vice President Dan Quail. The man who was disqualified from being president because he misspelled potato. Right. A simpler time 30 yes. years ago. But anyway, so I knew this scene from parodies. I know this scene because my father, Rich Noah, constantly quotes it. Every time we go to any kind of restaurant, whether it's an Italian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant or a Mexican restaurant, he will say, how's the Italian food at this restaurant? Hey, try the veal. It's the best in the city. 
my dad has literally said that in every restaurant he's ever been in. So when I hear that line in the movie, I smile and think of my dad. Shout out to Rich Noah, because he just says it constantly. Well, shout out to Rich Noah. This is the turning point in the film and also in the life of Michael Corleone because he says that the reason that they'll meet with him is because he's the pretty boy of the family. He's the soldier boy, the honorable one. He's not in the family business. Exactly. So he's a neutral guy. We'll talk to him and we'll talk tough to him, blah, 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 blah. They're not expecting him to shoot him in the face. Right. So um, this is where he shoots him in the face and he runs out. And I read that this is actually where there was supposed to be an intermission. There is in Godfather 2, but this film was going to be an intermission, and that's why right after this, the scene that was going to be right when you came back from intermission, this kind of reviews what's going on. We've talked about this in other podcasts. This is the spinning newspapers. Right. And they had mentioned this earlier that, you know, you can't kill a cop, but they go, well, we control the media. So let's, you know, we'll slowly leak out. You know, the first newspapers are like, oh, no, a cop killed. And everyone's like, oh, that's terrible. And then they're like, well, this cop was totally corrupt. So people are like, really not that mad. Right, right. It's been, but it's also true. The cop was corrupt. He was working with, uh, you know, the leader of one of the crime families. So it is a true claim. But because of what Michael has done, he killed not just a cop, but like, you know, the police chief or commissioner. He's a high up cop. Michael goes to Sicily. And he is in hiding there for years. And while he is there, he falls in love with Apollonia. And Apollonia is this beautiful woman who is an object. Like, she has nothing to do in the entire movie except basically look pretty. Like, when Michael is falling for her... She has zero lines of dialogue. During their quote-unquote courtship, she has zero lines of dialogue. The only thing that this woman says in the movie is, you teach me how to drive. You teach me how to drive. I know English Monday, Tuesday, Friday. And then she's blown up. Like, she literally has two lines of dialogue before she explodes because the rival gang members find Michael and they put a bomb in the car. It's supposed to blow up Michael, but it blows up her instead. And then he's sad. But this whole thing I thought was kind of a weird part of the movie. I mean, were these the New York guys that came all the way to Italy to get their revenge? Who were these guys trying to kill him? That is an excellent question. We know it's one of his bodyguards that was in Sicily. Did a New York guy get to him and pay him off? Or was it someone in Sicily? I genuinely don't know. So uh, Fredo, the brother, they kind of ship him off to Las Vegas where they have some contacts and some business uh, agreement with this guy, Mo Green. Mm -hmm. And Sonny, who's he's supposed to be kind of the, the heir apparent to Vito. He's kind of a hothead and he's running things a lot. But something else that's happening with the fourth child, uh, Connie, the Talia Shires character, she got married in the first scene. And this guy that she married... This guy's not that smart. He married into the Corleone family, and he's beating the shit out of his wife. Not yeah. a smart thing. Exactly. And the first time that Sonny finds out that this guy's beating his sister, he beats the shit out of Carlo, that's the husband, in the middle of the street in front of tons of onlookers and says, if you ever lay your hands on her again, I'll kill you. But not surprisingly, Carlo does beat Connie again. It happens when... Carlo's mistress calls the house 
and Connie picks up the phone and the mistress is like, oh, can you tell Sonny I can't meet him tonight? And then Connie gets very upset about your whore calling the house. And obviously this is well before cell phones. And I guess it's probably difficult to coordinate, you know, having a mistress that your wife doesn't know about, but having her call the house and say to your wife, oh, tell your husband I can't meet him tonight. That's a terribly stupid thing to do. Although later on, we realize that maybe this was all deliberate and planned. But what we see is Connie has a fit. She's very upset. And uh, Carlo beats the shit out of her again. By the way, not only is he just beating the shit out of his wife, he's beating the shit out of his pregnant wife. So Connie uh, is very upset. She calls Sonny. Sonny goes over to their home where he's planning to kill Carlo, but he is ambushed at the toll booth and he is shot a bajillion times by a whole lot of people uh, who are waiting for him. When I first saw this scene, I thought it was like a plot hole because I was like, how did all of these guys know that he was going to be there? You know, it's not like they just happened to see him walking down the street and like they took a couple shots at him and got lucky. This was an orchestrated hit. But no one mentions that until like much, much later in the movie. You're right. I mean, they obviously had to know that at some point he would have to go and uh, cross this toll booth. But in, in the time before cell phones, before you can really coordinate this stuff, yeah, these guys probably were there for hours and hours and hours. Right. If this was all a plan, they had to wait for this mistress to call Connie. And Connie has to react to her husband, who has to beat her up. And then we have to wait for Connie to call her brother in anger to tell him what happened. So it's very interesting. And I always also wondered, the tollbooth guy, when the tollbooth locks the gate in front of him, he just kind of ducks down. And I always wonder, like, does this guy die? I think he must die. That's a good question. I didn't think about that. You almost kind of feel like what these guys should do, because you're right, they had been waiting there for so long, just send the regular toll booth operator or guy home, maybe steal his uniform. So that way, when Sonny shows up, it's just one of your guys who's there. That way you don't have to kill a toll booth operator. And you also get a free toll booth operator uniform out of the deal. So not bad. Also, none of this stands the test of time because easy pass. <laughs> right. This this entire thing could not have worked because of easy pass. <laughs> I mean, right? Um, but because Vito, by the way, is alive, he, he was shot five times, but he's recovering. When he hears about Sonny, he's devastated. His son was murdered. And not just murdered, they shot him a bajillion times. Like while he's like lying dead on the ground, they run over and shoot him some more. This is when he calls in one of the favors from the wedding scene. One of the people who'd asked him for a favor runs a mortuary and they ask him to do what they can with the body so that it will be presentable in an open casket funeral. Yeah, and this reminds me of the scene from Goodfellas. And the reason I understood this is because they murder Joe Pesci's character, Tommy, by shooting him in the face. And they purposely say, just so his mother wouldn't be able to have an open casket. 
And, you know, Vito has to go to him and say, you know, I need you to do something. And my sister, Joanna, um, you know, she used to work in the uh, funeral home business. And she would say, you know, you have to reconstruct some of these people sometimes, you know, be presentable for this thing. And it is not easy. Yeah. And to me, this sort of does beg a bigger question, which is that a lot of the times in these gangster movies, they say things like, it's not personal, it's business. But then a lot of the times it is personal. And like this hit on Sonny is personal. They weren't just killing Sonny because he was bad for their business. They hated him and they wanted him to be massacred in this way. So sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's business. When does that line get crossed? It gets crossed more often than you might think. And then Along those lines, Vito and all of the other bosses and the heads of the families, they have a big sit-down meeting, and Vito says that he will allow the drugs to, to flow. He changes his position, and he says, that's the end of it. We're not going to fight anymore. This war is over. You killed my son. Apparently, Sonny killed one of the sons of one of the other guys, I think Tatalia. And he says, no more bloodshed. I have other sons. I'm not going to go after anyone. You're not going to come after me. It's over. It's done. The personal stuff, we let it go. And he's doing just that. It's not personal. It's business. Let's do what's best for business. Let's leave all the personal shit behind, which is kind of like pretty big of him when you think of it, right? His son was just massacred. But then he also figures out that it wasn't Tatalia who was behind all of their problems with uh Salazzo and everything. It was this other guy, Barzini. He was the real mastermind. And even though Vito says, hey, we're calling a truce, Barzini is still mad. And this feud continues because Barzini still hates Vito. And I didn't get that at all. Because again, if it's all about business, wouldn't this be good for Barzini and Tatalia and Salazzo and all of them? Like, isn't this exactly what they want? Why does the war continue after Vito gives them what they want. Well, because they let their emotions get the best of them. So it is personal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vito's smart, and it shouldn't be, but not everyone's as smart as him. Okay. I guess I was just kind of expecting a little bit more there. Then Michael comes home, and he goes back to Kay and says, I love you, and we should get married. Doesn't mention the fact that he got married to someone else, and, you know, he's on the market because his other wife got blown up, and Kay is basically, you know, his backup option. And also they say that he has been back in the States for a year. So he was hiding in Sicily for three years and couldn't communicate with Kay at all then, which a little bit, I think like he could have sent a letter, right? There's got to be a way that there could have been some kind of untraceable communication back in the 1940s that could have worked. But even if you say, no, 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 they couldn't have done that. Fine. But then he's been back in the U.S. for a year before he goes to CK. And she's pissed. But then he says, I love you. Let's get married. And she says, yeah, OK, sure. Why would she say yes? I didn't understand that. She just does because he needs to have a, a new wife in America, I guess. I think that's what it is. I think, you know, for appearances, he needs a wife and everything. And... And Michael, he's decided now he's going to expand the business. He's going to Vegas. 
And he sends Tom there because everything's going to be legal with him. And they try to buy out Mo Green. And Mo Green's like, you don't buy me out. I buy you out. And uh, Fredo, you know, he's kind of acting a little more loyal to Mo. And he's like, you know, Michael, you shouldn't really talk to Mo Green like that. You know who Mo Green is? And, you know, Michael's taken aback by that. But Fredo is just influenced by anyone around him. You could tell he's probably very easily impressed. Yes. And Vito, he tells Michael that whoever arranges a meeting between him and Brazzini, that's the traitor. So Tessio, he's the one who winds up uh, arranging the meeting. And do you know who Tessio is played by? Yes, that's Abe Vigoda. Yes, and... This man used to live in Nyack, where I grew up, and my dad used to say uh, that he would see him sometimes, and he would like talk to him, he'd like say a line to him. But how do you think I knew Abe Vigoda, Al? Because he was constantly a punchline on Conan O'Brien, on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Exactly. Like, I knew Abe Vigoda because he'd be the guy with his pants down his ankle, being brought out from behind the curtain, sitting on an ice toilet on Conan O'Brien, and then he just waves to the audience, and then he's brought out. Like, he'll be in celebrity boxing where he's fighting, like, you know, a 700-pound woman. Either he beats her up or he gets the shit beaten out of him. Like, he was always a really, really sweet, like, in-on-the-joke punching bag. And I, I couldn't stop, like, laughing every time I saw Tessio. He hadn't done a lot before this. Like, he wasn't in a lot of movies pre-Godfather but for whatever reason, Francis Ford Coppola liked him for this part. And it seems like he's not very good at being sneaky because Vito dies. And at the funeral, Tessio goes over to Michael and says, oh, you should have a meeting with Barzini. And then he goes like straight over to Barzini and is like shaking his hand. It's like, well, you're kind <laughs> of like not being very subtle about this, Tessio. But they realize that Tessio is the bad guy. And Michael has been asked to be the godfather to Connie and Carlo's son. And then at the baptism ceremony, Michael is there in public in a church with a really good alibi because lots of people see him there. He has everybody killed. Everyone who has wronged him. They kill Tessio. They kill Mo Green. They kill a lot of other people who I didn't recognize, like, uh, you know, heads of the families. They kill Barzini. And basically, they're cleaning house, but there's still one loose thread, and that is Carlo, Connie's husband. And Michael says, how did Sonny die? How did all those guys know that Sonny was going to be there? I know that you sold him out, right? And he makes Carlo confess. He says that he did it. And Michael says, okay, you know what? I'm not going to kill you. You are the father to my godson. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send you away to Las Vegas. Here's a plane ticket. You are going to live your life far away from all of us. But of course, it's all bullshit. As soon as he gets in the car, they garret him. You know, they strangle him to death. They drive away with like his foot hanging out of the windshield because, you know, like he's struggling and, you know, he kicks out and then they drive away. I'm like, they should maybe not have a foot hanging out of the windshield when they drive the body away. But also, why did he go through all of that theater? Why does he say 
Oh, you're going to live out the rest of your days in Las Vegas and you're going to be fine, but far away from us. He hands him a plane ticket. Is that a real plane ticket? Is it a prop? Why bother if you're just going to kill him 30 seconds later? I think the point is to make the guy as comfortable as possible so that the guy, if he thinks he's going to live, he's going to tell you what he thinks you want to know. And yes, I know he already told him, so why is he still being sort of nice to him with the ticket? I think he's still like seeing his reaction and the look at his face isn't like, I lied and got away with it. His look at his face is, oh no, I'm banned to Las Vegas for the rest of my life. I get it. This is the 40s or maybe it's the early 50s by now. Like, you can't just buy a, a plane ticket online. You have to like go to a travel agent and have it printed out just so you could hand it to this guy and you're not even going to use it. Seems like a waste. I don't think it was actually that secure. I think if you probably had a ticket, you can get on that plane. Oh, okay. So maybe someone else could use it and go to Vegas? Probably. Oh, okay. But then there's one more scene where they're at the home and... Connie runs into the room and she accuses Michael of killing her husband. How dare you? How could you? Why would you do that? And Kay asks Michael if it's true. And Michael says, you don't talk to me about my business. You never ask me about my business. And then he says, okay, you know what? Just this one time, this one time I will allow you to. And she says, did you kill Carlo? Did you kill your brother-in-law? And he says, no. He looks her right in the eye and lies to her. And she says, okay. And then everyone walks into the room and kisses his ring because he is now the godfather and they close the door in her face. And that is the end of the first godfather, or I guess just the godfather as it was known then. So James, do you think this movie stands the test of time? Um, you know, I'll say that this film stood up uh, a lot better than the first time I saw it. And I liked it the first time I saw it, but I was so confused the <laughs> first time I saw this. And I saw this, I think, on one of those double VHS kind of deals. And we had to watch over two tapes. And this time, I was still pretty confused. But I had a buddy of mine, a buddy named Wikipedia. Mm. And I was able to tell who these people were. I was able to follow along and go, oh, okay, that's this guy. And this film still kind of needs that. A film like Goodfellas or a show like The Sopranos. You know, these are films that will definitely remind you of who people are. Uh, you know, a serial show uh, like The Sopranos will probably re-remind you every time a, a character comes back in. Oh, it's that guy from, you remember the time he offed this guy from New Jersey. They go out of their way to help the audience. And when something's based on a novel, you can tell like maybe the screenwriter is, in this case, who is the author of the novel is forgetting that most of us haven't read the novel. We can't tell the subtle differences between some of these people. So that is still pretty confusing about this film. And yep. I do not think this film should be remade. I think this is a great film. I think, yes, it stands the test of time. That being said, if this film were to be remade, I think they can make it clearer who everyone is. That's really my only criticism of this film. It's just interesting that I actually liked it better than I than I did beforehand. I always remember thinking I liked the second one better because that's actually what a lot of people say. But, you know, I'm excited to talk about the film next week. But part one, fantastic film. And you really can tell now based on all the mom films I've 
I've seen in mob stories, this is where it all came from. And the original, sometimes it's not as good, even though it's a basis of everything, but this one, absolutely, I think it stands up. You might need a little Wikipedia as a companion when you watch it. So what do you think, Al? Does this film stand the test of time? Well, I definitely agree with you about the plot being confusing in terms of like the inner machinations of Salazzo and uh, Tatalia and Barzini and who are all of these guys and they kind of all look the same they're a bunch of just old white dudes with Italian names and it is easy to get them mixed up and I definitely did and you know oh that's this capo and that's the other capo and that's the other guy's consigliere and yeah it is confusing and I was not totally 100% clear while I was watching it who everybody was. So I can certainly relate to that. Um, Something I was kind of hinting at before when I was talking about Apollonia is that this movie does a real disservice to its female characters. Apollonia is just an object for Michael to lust after. Connie is just an object to get the shit beaten out of her. And that's Talia Shire. She can act. Kay is just an object for Michael to sort of be quote unquote in love with and then discard and then come back to when his other wife is blown up. And that's Diane Keaton. Like there are really talented female actresses in this movie who don't have anything to do. And that's a shame because, you know, there are strong female characters in Goodfellas and The Sopranos and Okay, fine, but this movie is called The Godfather. It's not The Godfather at all the women in his family. But, you know, that kind of left out at me. But Marlon Brando is really, really good in this movie. Al Pacino is great in this movie. We've seen Al Pacino before in Heat and Scent of a Woman. And I think in both of those episodes, I commented that I don't always love when Al Pacino is in like super overacty mode. hoo Exactly. He doesn't do that in this movie. He's just acting, not overacting. And he's really, really great. Like I loved watching him in this movie. I thought he was phenomenal. I love Robert Duvall. The theme is great. I'm surprised you didn't mention that. You always talk about how much you love the theme. Uh, But everything about this movie is great. And like you said, this movie is the precedent. Without this movie, there is no Goodfellas. Maybe there's no Scarface. There's no Sopranos. There's not any of this obsession with mob culture. And this movie has been criticized in some circles for its negative portrayals of Italian-Americans. And people watch this movie and they think that, all Italian Americans are connected to the mafia. And of course, that's not true. You can make the argument that this movie does reinforce some negative stereotypes. But because it is so well known, because it is such a part of the our collective common culture and the zeitgeist. And if you've never seen this movie before in your life, you've heard make him an offer he can't refuse. Yes, this movie definitely stands the test of time. And uh, I'm excited to watch the sequel next week, The Godfather Part 2, that is considered by many, some, to be one of the best sequels ever, perhaps better than The Godfather. What I've read, you have that, you have Aliens, you have Terminator 2, and then you have uh, The Chipmunks, The Squeakwool. I think one of those is incorrect. I'm not sure. One of them's wrong. 
Um, but of course, until then, we want to hear from you. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs> Stop laughing. I'm trying to tell people where they can find us on social media. Somebody greenlit a movie that the word squeakle. They weren't supposed to actually use it. Then someone like went with it. <laughs> someone thought it's brilliant. Print it. Um, <laughs> but let us know your thoughts on the Godfather movies how you're celebrating the Godfather's 50th anniversary, and we will see you next week for The Godfather Part 2. That's an offer you can't refuse. Eh? Eh? That was a good Brando. No, it wasn't. We'll make you enough. That was even better, Brando. Thank you, thank you. Bye.